0: You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, Legal Talk Network listeners. This is producer Lawrence Coletti reporting about the American Bar Association's National Summit on Innovation and Legal Services, which took place at Stanford Law School in Stanford, California. What you're about to hear are two panel interviews covering a series of mini presentations that were part of Programs to Bridge the Gap speaking event. I would like to thank Victor Lee legal affairs writer from the ABA Journal, for co-hosting the following panel interviews with me. We now cut to Professor Andrew Perlman from Suffolk University Boston Law School.
1: Hi, I'm Andy Perlman. I'm a professor at Suffolk Law School in Boston, where I direct our Institute on Law Practice, Technology, and Innovation. I'm also the vice chair of the ABA Commission on the Future of Legal Services.
2: Hi, I'm Chantel Argyle. I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm co-founder and executive director of Open Legal Services, which is a nonprofit law firm serving lower and middle-income class clientele.
3: My name is Dwight Smith. I practice law in Tulsa, Oklahoma by myself. I've been solo for several years now. I'm a mediator, arbitrator, and I advise clients on uh, business matters uh, on a regular basis, and I'm uh, proud to be a member of this commission uh, and to uh, have had a part in the summit here. Your Honor,
4: as you said, I'm Laurie White. I'm from New Orleans. I'm elected in citywide, and I'm a criminal district court judge handling felonies and capital cases. And Terry,
5: I'm Terry Masher, and I'm a partner in Chicago with Jenner and Block, and past president of the Chicago Bar. Uh, I also chair the steering committee for a new legal incubator that we've started under the auspices of the Chicago Bar Foundation, which is known as the Justice Entrepreneurs Project.
0: Great so at first uh, Victor I'm going to turn the uh, Florida to mr. Dwight Smith and give us the 50,000 foot view of
3: what the programs to bridge the gap is all about well the big picture is as you know the summit is to address uh, really a twofold issue there's a there's an enormous justice gap that we know in the United States people are not uh, being provided for any number of reasons with legal services which they need, and we know that the problem is only going to exacerbate or get worse in the future. And so the reason that we're here is is to explore ways uh, to address that gap in the future. And the specific purpose of the program this afternoon was to bring some of the most innovative programs throughout the United States that are already addressing in a very tangible way uh, the justice gap in the United States, Uh, and to hear from those people about their programs and what it is that they're doing.
0: That's great, so uh, I'm gonna start with Andrew Perlman. uh, Professor Perlman, Uh, your presentation was titled Innovation in Legal Education. Can you tell
1: us what that was about? Yeah. So the basic idea is there's a lot that's changed in terms of how law is practiced today relative to what it was a hundred years ago. But when you look at legal education, remarkably little has changed in terms of how law students are trained and how the next generation of lawyers uh, are learning. And so the point of my presentation was to highlight some work that I've been doing at my own law school, Suffolk, um, to emphasize a new skill set, a new knowledge base that I think the next generation of lawyers needs, and in particular focusing on legal technology. Uh, so we have a course on automated document assembly and expert systems, and our students get their hands dirty in learning how to automate the creation of legal documents. They learn about legal project management and process improvement. So a whole range of new skills and knowledge that I think will put our students in a better position to succeed in a new marketplace.
6: So um, obviously, um, you know, I've spoken to you before about these various programs and whatnot, but I guess what was sort of, uh, I mean, you talked a little bit in your presentation about the need for uh, you know updating the legal curriculum and whatnot, but what like was there anything specific that um, kind of brought this idea to bear? Like, I mean, did you? Did you find that your students in particular had, had a certain demand for these kind of uh, skills or you know, had deficiency in, in certain areas?
1: Well, we did what a lot of law schools should be doing, which is we looked at the marketplace and we looked at where the jobs are going as opposed to where they used to be. And if you look at the job data of recent graduates, you see that there's been a dramatic drop nationwide in terms of traditional employment. To some extent, that's rebound over the last year, but I don't think it's going to go back to the way that it was. So if we want to put our students in the best position to succeed, I I think we need to go to where the puck's going, to use the Wayne Gretzky (coughs) quote that Richard Susskind likes to use. Um, And so we saw where the puck is going and we decided to retool uh, at least a part of our curriculum to meet that challenge.
0: Can you give us a little bit about the curriculum? What changes have you been making?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, one of my favorite uh, courses that we've incorporated over the last uh, couple of years is this uh, class called Lawyering in an Age of Smart Machines. And so in a lot of documents that lawyers regularly use, uh... the way that they go about creating a new version of that document is they'll click on an old version of it they save as and then they go through and manually change some of the features of it or maybe they'll get fancy and use find and replace but there are much better ways to produce those same documents uh... lots of software that's available that through an automated guided question you can populate that document in much shorter period of time and much more cost-effectively. So if we're thinking about ways to bridge the gap, to provide legal services in a more cost-effective way, one easy way to do that is just to think about the documents that we create all the time and be able to create them in a more cost-effective manner. So that and then my other, um, other core course, uh, Project Management and Process Improvement, these are concepts that the business world has been using for generations in order to produce any number of services or products more efficiently. Um, Increasingly, the legal industry is relying on those same concepts. And so our students take a course from which they graduate with a yellow belt um, in uh, project management. And so it really, I think, advances the ball in terms of the kinds of knowledge uh, that they will have on graduation and put them in a better position to succeed.
0: Great. Chantel, your uh, your presentation was called Open Legal Services slash Utah Nonprofit Law Firm. Tell us about that.
2: So really the title of it was uh, What the Market Will Bear, Serving the Underserved Ethically and Sustainably. Uh, We have a duty to serve this clientele. We have a duty to fill the access to justice, and we have uh, a need to build a model that will create sustainable access to justice so that clients can rely that we'll always be there and we'll keep our doors open, keep our lawyers employed. Um, So having an opportunity to speak about that model as just one of the possible solutions out there was really exciting for me. I felt very privileged to be included among all these amazing people who are doing amazing things.
6: Now, obviously, you're a newly minted lawyer. I think they said that you uh, were admitted in 2014. So, I mean, just as someone who just recently went through the law school grind and um, everything that goes along with that, what made you decide, okay, I want to pursue... Um, you know, this innovative type of providing a certain legal service as opposed to, you know, doing what everyone else does, you know, try to go, try to get to a big firm and, you know, pay back all your debts and everything.
2: Sure. So it was actually 2013 uh, that I was admitted. So I've been out a year and a half or so. Um, My partner and I, co-founder Dan Spencer, both of us had had careers before law school. Both of us had been victims to the recession and found ourselves going back to school. Um, We both have young children at home. Uh, It's a priority for us to have a stable job. We're both looking at government jobs, prosecution and defense, respectively, uh, hoping to get loan forgiveness for our vast student loan debt. Um, His is a little more than mine because he did a private school the first year. Uh, But it's, it's a huge and daunting thing to look for a job as a new grad as it is. But when you have you know a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt, that's a whole other matter. You, know, you have two kids at home, you need health insurance for those kids. Um, where do we find those jobs when those jobs have disappeared? We decided to go ahead and try and create them. And we knew who we wanted to serve. We just had to figure out a way to do it in a way that we could earn a profit, pay our salaries, pay our expenses at home, uh, and maybe also get some of those perks that you get um, if you take a government job or a nonprofit job. Um, so we were lucky to come up with a business model that was relatively new that would allow us to do all the things we wanted to do and do it stably. And now we have, you know, four other attorneys that work for us who also wouldn't have a job today if, if we hadn't created it for them. Great.
0: And uh, Judge White, uh, you did a, and this is a very compelling program. I did catch about half of it and uh, you made some, uh, made an impact. Orleans Parish Reentry Program. Will you tell us about that?
4: Well, I'm co-founder with another judge. We decided that We put young men away and women every day um, to prison, sometimes life sentences, long sentences, and we wanted to do something. We feel like that we can't stop, we can't arrest the crime problem away. So the way to do it is to work and try to give an opportunity to people that will be coming out of prison so that maybe they can get a job. We feel like having a job and the skills to make a living will not return an ex-offender To Back to prison. Because when you are an ex-offender, you cannot get a job when you get out of prison. So at least if you have a skill, and then we've been working with the community, and if the community knows that a judge and other community leaders are working with these people, then they're more inclined to hire them.
0: You shared uh, an alarming incarceration rate as part of your presentation uh, in regards to the state of Louisiana, mm-hmm. and you work in Orleans uh, Parish. And so will you share with our audience uh, that We figure? have the highest
4: incarceration rate in the world. One in every 75 Louisianians is in prison.
0: Wow, that is that is amazing. And so, I mean, obviously, you know, Orleans uh parish struggling after Hurricane Katrina. You know, there's uh, not as much opportunity as there once was. Um, and I think uh, I
4: think it's- We have s- a lot more now. What? Okay. We're, we're, we're really on fire. The city is coming back. We have a lot of young people, but we have a high crime rate. With that high incarceration rate, we still have the highest numbers in violent crimes. Uh, we're in the top 10 in the nation, and that's not something we need to be in the top of.
6: Well, um, one thing that, that interested me from your talk was, and also from the video presentation, is just sort of the, the willingness of, you know, these hardened criminals, people who have no prospect of getting out of prison, being willing to help uh, mentor people who maybe do have a chance. I mean, did it surprise you that, that there were a, like like a large number of these uh, types of inmates who were no, willing this, to do it? No, they
4: were the reason I wanted to do the program. I never found them hardened. I had been a prosecutor, I put some of them in prison for life. And then I was a defense lawyer and represented some of them. So now as a judge their cases either come back before me, or I knew they had something that they could offer. And that prison, Louisiana State Penitentiary, has almost 7,000 inmates, and almost everyone there has a life sentence. New Orleans puts more than 70% of the inmates in um, prison for life. So we have the highest percentage of numbers with life sentences. So I wanted to have a program that was high in treatment of life skills. In essence, I wanted it holistic, and when I mean holistic, whole-bodied. I wanted them to parent them, take them out of their community, and to tell them, don't do what I did, because these gentlemen really aren't hardened anymore. They've been in prison and they've been selected to be in this program because they are mentor-trained. They don't have a chance to get out, and they, they are, their only chance is a pardon many of them even though they're doing this program they still get no extra benefit but they have something to offer and by them doing this this also w- can change the mindset of our community and our state and perhaps the country that people that ha- are doing a life sentence do not necessarily have nothing to offer
0: judge white uh, one of the one of the big takeaways from uh, your presentation that i saw was for the the men that are getting out of prison and they're looking for jobs and, and like you just said they can't get a job and so um, you know, one of my, I guess one of the beliefs that I still hold to uh, and after graduating law school and being out in practice for a little bit is that crime and punishment, we should be able to rehabilitate people and bring them back to society. Yes, they did damage to society by committing the crime that they did, but once, and this is my belief, when you go to prison and you serve your sentence, you should be able to start from scratch. And so, but I think it's difficult because, you know, people don't want to hire someone who's a felon who's been behind bars for several years. So. What I'd like to ask you is what can you tell potential employers about these men and women who are coming out of prison? Why should they hire somebody that has served their sentence behind bars? Why make that risk? Why is it important?
4: Well, our society does not consider that a person that's done their sentence has done everything they can do. Punishment continues after you're released from prison. It's called the Department of Corrections for a reason. It is the Department of Corrections, but it is not correcting them necessarily. Our program hopes to correct people with an ability to do something along with the title ex-felon or felon in the past. So for people not to be afraid of a felon, that was why we selected people with non-violent, non-sex related crimes so that you're not as worried about putting them to work in your electrical business or your plumbing business or your car dealership. So we're starting there because that's really, you know, people, some people need to be incarcerated for a long time, maybe forever, but it depends on many times the person on whether they should be given another chance and what they're doing with their life. So we're providing an opportunity and, and not everybody wants an opportunity, but those that do this program's providing that.
0: Great. Well, we're going to turn the microphone to uh, Ms. Terry Masherin. Uh, your uh, presentation was titled Chicago Bar Foundation Justice Entrepreneurs Project. Can you tell us about that?
5: Sure. Our project is a legal incubator, and we're really aimed at addressing, in part, the problem that Chantel uh, identified, which is folks coming out of law school who really want to be able to serve what we call regular people um, and want to be able to do that and make a living at it. And on the other hand, we were trying to address the problem of the justice gap. There's an ever-growing amount of the United States population that needs legal help. They make too much money. They, they earn something, and they make too much money to qualify for free legal aid or, or, or the legal aid organizations you know, where they're located are overtaxed and can't help them, yet they don't know how to access a lawyer at a a fee that they can actually afford to pay. So we're trying to we tried to devise a way to train these new lawyers coming out of law school who were socially minded, who wanted to help regular folks, folks low income, middle income folks learn how to build their own legal practices so that they could then have a sustainable career in the field that they were you know excited to join.
6: One thing that kind of caught my attention with your presentation was the idea of the uh, attorneys in your program learning how to or having the opportunity to generate their own business to bring in their own clients and whatnot. Could you talk a little, a little bit about that because it seems like it seems like that's a very important skill for any young lawyer to have, but especially one that's going to go off and uh, start their own practice.
5: Yeah, absolutely, it certainly is. And we try to to train them how to be You know, how to generate business uh, in a number of different respects. One is, uh, one way that they learn that is they work during the first six months of the 18 month incubator program, they work 20 hours a week for a Uh, a not-for-profit legal aid organization that's aligned with the area of practice that they're interested in, in practicing in. And one of the things that that allows them to do is to get experience actually working with clients and also start to build a referral network from amongst their co-workers at the legal aid organization and also others who they interact with in the legal process as they're representing the clients that they get through the Legal Aid Organization. We also provide uh, weekly training programs throughout the 18-month program where we bring in folks both from the legal profession and also from business, from marketing, from advertising, from tech people, people who, you know, teach them how to leverage the use of technology. As, as Andrew discussed, his courses are teaching, you know, how can I provide services to my clients more cost effectively by learning how to use some of these online tools or by devising my own tools you know that I can use to to help leverage the use of technology to be able to reduce the cost of the service I provide to the client. So we we both try to train them in how to how to find clients, how to attract them and then also how to how to figure out how to deliver service efficiently and then how to price that service in a way that's sustainable for them, that's realistic for the client and that's transparent so that the client going into the situation knows exactly what it's going to cost.
0: I'd like to turn the microphone uh, one more time back to Dwight. And you know, you've heard, uh, obviously you heard all the presentations and we've been uh, discussing this roundtable. Uh, can you give us your biggest takeaway from listening to all these presentations on programs at Bridget Gap? What, what was the biggest impact for you?
3: That although there are seemingly insurmountable problems in front of us, one of the things that lawyers do best is convene and collaborate and attack and solve problems. And uh, we will address the problem of the delivery of legal services to those in need. And there are already people thinking about these issues on a constant basis and doing really hard and incredible work to address them. And and we're going to go a long ways. And this summit is going to have a big impact on shaping the future.
0: We hope you enjoyed this first panel interview. Up next... We continue our Programs to Bridge Gap coverage with Chief Judge Ann Aiken from the U.S. District Court for the District of Oregon and Mr. Steve Crossland, Chair for the Limited License Legal Technicians of Washington State. Here's Judge Aiken.
7: I'm the chief judge of the District of Oregon, so Oregon is one district, so I live in Eugene. It's a college town. It's a great place to live, but I serve the state. I have chambers in both Portland and Eugene, and I have to honestly say that I think I did 41 round trips to Portland last year, and it's hands-on, and if you're really going to manage the courts, you're going to be involved and active and engaged. So as we move into the next uh, generation of judicial problem solving, it's hands-on. Great.
8: Mr. Crossland, Yes. Well, I'm a sole practitioner in a small town in north central Washington. I'm former president of the Washington State Bar Association, and I'm now chair of the Limited License Legal Technician Board.
0: Fantastic. So uh, we turn to Judge Your your presentation, Justice Systems Innovations in Oregon. Tell us about that.
7: Literally, we're trying to figure out two different ways to attack both the issues in the criminal justice world as well as in the civil justice world because they overlap. And we have a, a number of problems we're trying to tackle, but basically we have so many people coming out of prisons, 650,000 nationally every year. And we have an inadequate s- system space to address those needs, and we have a huge uh, dearth of um, resources and opportunities for folks to come back and be contributing members. So they're recycling back into the prisons. So we held a major summit, we started working on strategies to better address address those needs. What's happened is technology has creeped into the field because As we have addressed their problems, access to getting to a human being oftentimes stalls out when they can get a solution. And before we can get to these folks, they're reoffending and going back to prison. So we reached out to the technology community to see if they could help us by uh, dedicating some intellectual energy towards creating either a smartphone or an app or a strategy that allows us to use responsivity and interact in a timely fashion to address their problems and Prevent revictimization, and the tech community has responded in spades. I think that's led to my participation in this conference.
6: So, Judge, as I'm sure you're aware, you're you're one of the patron saints of the uh, the the legal hackathon movement. Uh, everyone at every hackathon I've ever gone to always brings up uh, the app that you describe. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about it. Like like how exactly does it help? you know, people from becoming recidivists?
7: Absolutely. Thank you. That's a gift of of a question. The most recent iteration we met uh, last week in D.C., or actually earlier this week in D.C., with someone who's dedicated some resources to actually working with our hackathon group and with the variety of of players, including folks from the MIT uh, Design School. uh, Margaret Hagen is available to work with us on some of the design features. Dan Lear out of the state of Washington has been just an, an amazing resource, and the federal judiciary. Center Mark Sherman, but our most recent iteration um, is been organized around how to do sort of um, sort of sanction slash help works projects or apps so to speak or criteria. And when we first met with them, it was really had everything to do with sort of control and contain. And when we had a a meeting and a a consultation with them, we basically said, look, our folks are very used to that. It's not a big problem. GPS systems, they understand. What they don't have and what they really need are these responsivities, these ways to get in touch with folks. So I can tell you the most recent iteration of the device we're going to test drive is it's cost-effective, number one, because it's an app. It's on a platform, and it can be addressed and fine-tuned as we uh, learn information. It has an active GPS system. It has geofencing. So if we have victims that we don't want individuals around, we can. Geofence and know where they are and make sure they're not accidentally crossing into territory they shouldn't be. It'll have court calendars. Ironically, we have more problems with just people missing dates. It's no different in our world um, when that happens, and it's very costly when people don't make their court dates, and it ends up oftentimes disrupting with a, cert- with a warrant and then the I- inability to stay in their jobs. So it'll have a really sophisticated calendaring system and dinging to remind them whether it's a, a UA, a treatment program a jobs um, assessment or uh, school, whatever it'll be, you'll have the sophisticated calendaring system. Drug and alcohol testing for a dollar. You'll be able to do breathalyzers on site with this device. Client analytics. So we can basically have a drive a look at what they're doing. Sort of a snapshot like a Fitbit or a fuel band where you can assess how you're um, moving in your progress. And for our offenders, believe it or not, they are so motivated by how well they're doing. They rarely had the opportunity to be told they're doing well. It'll have a mobile exclusion zone so that there'll be places they're not allowed to go and it'll go off when they're in those areas. And then it'll have individualized incentives or gamification, so to speak. And what we have found is when we provide incentives and have an opportunity to reward them for good decision-making, good behavior, that that's you know, part of the cognitive skill building that we're really working on, how to reward people for doing the next right thing. And finally, there'll be the sanctions part of it, where we'll have a real appreciation to say, here's the record, here's what we have, and here's where we're going to go. But the bottom line is the from the analytics standpoint, the probation office will have a dashboard of their clientele, and they'll be able to make decisions regarding their individuals based on performance and we will be able to make funding decisions based on those analytics. So it's interactive and we'll be able to fine tune it to drop out features that are not as helpful and to change those features as we go. So it's really an R&D process.
0: Judge Aiken, I mean, I, I've listened to some of these programs. We've got apps that are taking care of a lot of problems that would require a lot of bodies in the field to address. Right. So it sounds like, I mean, you know, through the development of apps and this this gamification process you're doing, right. I mean, it sounds, I'm hearing about savings here to the taxpayer. Is Are you Huge finding Huge
7: savings, yeah. It, it, Do you I, have some figures you can share with us? Well, we did it, we showed a chart and where we have been working with our reentry folks and we haven't even had um, this sophisticated kind of a tool, but we have had the ability to have the team and I'm a member of the team, which is the prosecutor, the defense attorney, the probation officer, the treatment providers, and then a number of auxiliary services on on staff. All the pro- our participants have our cell phone numbers, and they text regularly if they have needs or questions or problems or issues, and we're a cup of coffee away from going in and solving a problem. You cannot believe how that quick responsivity makes a big difference. So when we look at trying to look at how to quantify this and provide some economic analysis. We've had about 160 people. It's a model program, 160 people. We've looked at the the revocation rates. So if somebody was revoked and sent back to prison, the average in Oregon is for nine months. So we did the calculations for how much it costs to send somebody to prison for nine months. And then we looked at what would be the savings uh, by having people out on supervision. And essentially for our, about 160 people in Oregon using rough uh, mathematics, we've saved about $1.6 million. Now, if you multiply that across the country, we've gone from basically zero programs to now we have about 72 programs in 94 districts.
0: I'd like to turn the microphone to Mr. Stephen Crossland, uh, your your presentation, Limited License Legal Technicians. Uh, please tell us a little bit about that.
8: Well, it's a new class of legal service providers. It's uh, people that have been, um, this program is approved by the state Supreme Court, uh, the first of its nature in the country. They receive a license to practice law in a limited scope within uh, the state of Washington. Uh, the first practice area that was chosen is family law. Uh, the rules designed to be applied to any number of practice areas. What makes it unique is that they are uniquely Qualified in that they have a very robust education that involves education and training and a curriculum in the core of being uh, a limited licensed legal service provider. And then they have a year, essentially a year of, of law school, that is curriculum designed by the law school professors that specifically teaches them the skills to deliver the services in the limited scope in the area of family law.
6: Like one thing that I was really interested about with with what you, during your speech, was you talked about how someone of these, um, I guess, what, what is called triple LTs. Triple LTs, right. Very often, they'll have more practical experience under their belt than... A first-year attorney, or 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 a recent law grad. So it's like, so if I were someone in need of legal services, why wouldn't I ha- just hire one of these triple LTS as opposed to a brand-newly minted attorney who maybe doesn't know what they're doing?
8: It's a very good question, and I uh, and I, one thing I forgot to mention, you're right. They, um, I mentioned in my talk that one of the professors uh, at the University of Washington Law School commented after he helped us create the curriculum that his feeling was that the triple LTS practicing in the area of family law would be better qualified to deliver legal services in the area of family law than a JD, because most of us going to law school take maybe one or two courses, and this is a full year of family law courses. The other thing that triple LTS do, and I didn't mention this in the talk, and I think it's a really good idea, and perhaps someday would be applied to us as lawyers, is they're required to have 3,000 hours of work in a law firm with a lawyer under the supervision of a lawyer, which is an amazing experience in terms of um, kind of a, a, like an internship for in the medical field. And I think that's a wonderful experience because they're now uh, integrated into how legal services are provided. Um, I have to say when I began my practice some 40 years ago, I'd never stepped foot in a law office. And I think that's a, sad commentary. I think having triple LTs have experience in the practical sense, and that's the other thing. These classes that are taught at the law school are twin taught. They're taught by a professor, and they're also taught by an adjunct. So they get the experience of learning about family law, not only from the intellectual perspective, but from the practical perspective.
0: And you started with uh, family law in uh, Washington State, and I know that there's some plans to expand beyond, uh, beyond that. Uh, what are some of the other areas that you think this is a, a proper fit for?
8: Well, I have sort of two answers to that question. Okay. One, we looked at the civil legal needs study that our Supreme Court uh, commissioned about uh, 10 years ago, and the areas that uh, they identified in the civil legal needs study were family law, landlord-tenant, elder law, and immigration. Immigration, well, all of them continue to be huge areas of unmet need, and our board is now beginning the process of selecting the next practice area. The other thing that's happened with regard to um, the triple L T rule, and it's sort of a culture of innovation, we've had people come to us and say, have you thought about applying the rule to this practice area? A couple areas that have come up that, frankly, I had not considered. Uh, one, I gave a talk to the Prosecuting Attorneys Association, and they said, you know, we really would value their participation in the child support process. When we impose child support on a non-custodial parent, it might be helpful that they're represented. And the other, which uh, I had not thought about for sure, was in the area of boundary disputes. I uh, gave a talk recently to the statewide con- convention of uh, surveyors, and they thought, you know, this could be really innovative and helpful to reduce the cost, reduce the uh, sort of the anger and anxiety that occur in a, in a boundary dispute between two neighbors. And they thought, you know, if we could resolve the dispute in a much less controversial and acrimonious manner, perhaps we'd serve society better if that were to be done.
6: All right, so, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Washington State is the only state that allows for triplets to practice some sort of law without Without being licensed?
8: That's correct. Right.
6: What do you think is sort of stopping other states from adopting this model or, you know, kind of allowing triple LTs to engage in the limited uh, practice of law?
8: Um, well, I I think it's a matter of time and the fact that it's, it's changed. Uh, we've actually had the wonderful opportunity to speak to many maybe up to 15 uh, states who are interested in this program. And I would say there are two or three or four that are perhaps very interested, Oregon being one. Uh, Their board, we're gonna meet with their board later this month. Uh, California has been well on the way of adoption. Uh, Utah, uh, we spoke to them a couple months ago and they seem very interested. And we're gonna be speaking with Colorado also later this month.
0: This has been another edition of Special Reports. We hope you enjoyed this series of interviews. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a
6: lawyer.